Hello and welcome once again to the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day and it's Friday the 28th of February. This week's episode is about food. Should we be vegetarian? Should we be vegan? Is it wrong or even unsustainable to eat meat? Students at the London School of Economics seem to think so. Will we see, as some say, the end of farming? Will we return to mixed organic agriculture Or will the whole industry be revolutionised by technology? Are we condemning parts of the world to poverty and hunger while the rest of us overeat our way to obesity and ill health? The whole topic of food is full of questions and I don't pretend to have all or any of the answers, but at least I can provide some ideas, issues and opinions. Your feedback, as always, is welcomed. You can contact me at mail at anthony-day.com. It's my pleasure this week to start by welcoming our latest silver supporter, Dragos Mitrika from the Netherlands, who signed up this week at patreon.com slash SFR, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR, to make a monthly contribution towards the costs of publishing this podcast and the associated blog. This week's episode is a good example of that because I've paid for a transcription of the interview, which you're about to hear, and you can find it on the blog at all the w's.sustainablefutures.report. Dragos, welcome and thanks for your support. And let me take this opportunity to thank you all for listening and thank all my other patrons for their continuing support. We start with an interview. Anthony Davison, our guest today on the Sustainable Futures Report. You're the CEO of Big Barn, which is a not-for-profit organisation which has been trading for some 20 years. And as I understand it, your role is to encourage healthy eating and sustainable agriculture. Correct, yes. So how do you do that? Well, um, we um, when I first set up, uh, I'm a fifth-generation farmer and set up the site because we were growing onions in Norfolk. Mm-hmm. And um, every time we um, went to sell them, we could get about £100 a tonne. Uh, and two days later, we'd see the onions on the Tesco shelf for about £800 a tonne. <laughs> so our um, our food supply chain has um, is giving farmers a bad deal and consumers a bad deal because um, if anyone turned up at the farm and asked for onions, we'd be very happy to sell them at um, half the price of the supermarket. So the Big Barm is all about reconnecting people with where their food came from and, and helping farmers sell direct and consumers buy direct. And we hoped in that process that um, people would find out about the food they ate and they'd eat healthily because they'd buy fresher uh, local food. You've been doing quite a lot of work with schools, I believe. That's right. Um, we see that um, to change people to cooking and buying local food, we really need to um, act on the influencers, and we see the main influencers as children, um, because um, if you can get children eating healthily and going to their parents and wanting healthy food, um, it'll, it'll encourage parents to eat better food as well. So what are you actually doing with the children in the schools? Well, we ran a project in Leicester where we went in um, every week to help the kids um, grow seeds from um, in little plant pots. And then we built some uh, raised beds and planted fruit trees. And um, 
these children learned all about growing food and when it was ready they were really enthused to taste it and um, actually cook with it and we had this added incentive that uh, they could then take what they'd grown to the local shop and the local shop would sell it for them and um, so it was called crop for the shop and it was a really brilliant way of enthusing children about food and food growing. And have you any plans to roll that out further uh, into other schools across the country? Uh, we'd absolutely love to because um, we've got 26,000 schools in this country and we found out that 14,000 of them have got a veg patch and a, um, uh, or a garden. Uh, so it would actually be quite easy for them all to get involved. But unfortunately, it's not on the curriculum. And at the end of the year with the school in Leicester, we went to the teacher and said, look, here's the um, teaching notes. There's the veg patch. We managed to get a lot of um, academic subjects into the veg patch. So um, are you going to do it? And she said, no, I'm not doing it. It's not on the curriculum. I'm only doing what's on the curriculum. And unfortunately, uh, we've been running a, a petition for a long time about getting school food growing, getting food growing and cooking on the curriculum. And um, the, uh, the government with Ofsted only measures school performance on O-level maths and English. And that's a big mistake. So we are lobbying and we'd love to do more, but um, uh, we're restricted by government at the moment. Okay, so that's a, a dead end for the moment, unfortunately, then. Well, there is a new food and farming policy coming out at the moment and being worked on. And we hope that um, with the evidence that we've got with another other, a number of other organisations, that um, it will change and the, um, the government will see the opportunity. Because if you can... If you can change people to eat healthy food, um, I think at the moment, 20% of NHS spend is on food-related disease. So if we can get people eating healthy food, and if we can get those influence at school eating healthy food, we could see some massive savings in the NHS. Now, just tell me that again. 20%, do you reckon, of NHS expenditure? Is on food-related disease. Really? Okay. Yeah. And um, it, I think 10% is diabetes. And the rest is um, obesity and heart disease and other uh, food-related problems. So, um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot that can be done. And um, I think the time is right with Brexit and with people um, caring a bit more and with the, um, the massive amount of foodie programmes on TV. How, how do you relate Brexit to this? Well, people are going to start thinking about where their food comes from. Um, and um, we're going to have uh, kind of <clears throat> news about um, uh, sanctions and import duties on certain products. Hopefully things like um, American um, cheap food, like chlorinated chicken and uh, processed uh, pork that's come from low animal welfare uh, factories in America. You're hoping so, that, that they will be um, on the wrong <coughs> side of tariffs. They'll be kept out. I hope so. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Or, or there'll be some duty, but um, Mr. Trump doesn't want that. Uh, so therefore, we're going to have to look at uh, domestic food production. We're going to have to, yeah. And um, hopefully, when people see this trade war happening with um, cheap American food, they'll start thinking about what food they should buy. And when they go to the supermarket, they'll think about um, where their food comes from, and they'll want clearer labelling, which will be really good. Uh, but the only kind of food you can really trust is someone who's produced it locally and whose who's reputation is at stake, which is where our 
local food map comes in. Right, yes, I was going to come on to that. So your food map, tell us a bit about that, because um, it seems to be um, cover of the whole country. I, I looked at my local area, York, and you've got five or six um, producers listed. So um, tell me more about it. Well, it's a constantly evolving, constantly updating map that um, at the moment has got 8,500 local food outlets on it. Um, every outlet has a, a username and password to add pictures, video, description, and even build themselves an online shop if they want to. And what we do now is we share our map with as many websites as we can. So we'd love um, Yorkshire websites to have our map and to actually be adding to it. And the idea is that when you have our map, it looks like it's yours. And the more websites that have the map, the more those who are on the map will benefit because they can update their page and they can see it updated on all the other websites. So um, to help that process, we're becoming a, um, a co-op, a community benefit society. And we're sending a clear message that everyone can be part of this. And if it's a success, we all share in the success rather than um, a lot of these companies that uh, are backed by venture capitalists or um, investors who uh, suck out all the money. So how is your organisation backed? Well, at the moment, it's, it's backed by me and a few friends. And um, what will happen is that when we become a community benefit society, we will have to um, release our equity um, for everyone to be part of it. Right. So um, that'll be... Um, and hopefully that'll gain buy-in and we'll get uh, people like um, Jamie Oliver who will go, oh, this map looks really good. Uh, everyone's on it. I ought to have it on my website. And, of course, that helps the whole process. Okay. So what sort of organisations are actually on the, the food map? Uh, you've got um, lots of farm shops, farmers markets, uh, butchers, bakers. And um, what we want is for all of these people to put up a video of themselves which is very easy now with um, iPhones and YouTube, uh, basically to tell their story. And that's what people want is, is to see where their foods come from and to feel as though um, the person who's produced that food can be trusted. And uh, I think that would be a, a great way. And um, you'll notice that on some icons there's a little carrot flag, and that means if you've grown stuff in your garden or your school, you can take it there and they'll sell it for you. And this is a great way to, I think, build communities around food right and are we talking about local shops or are we talking about businesses with uh, uh, an online shop um there's if you go to the map you'll see that green icons uh, mean you have to go there and red icons mean you can click and buy uh, right. and you can nearly always go to the place the red icons as well yeah. but um we we want all kinds of people on the map and if you grow food you could take it to your farm shop or perhaps if there's a local pub that's joined crop for the shop, you can take your beetroot down there and they'll um, put that, put your beetroot in their menu and they'll give you a pint of beer in, in return for payment. So it's a great way of um, all sharing and, and building your community. Yeah, it's an interesting idea because we have an allotment and at certain times of year we get far, far more fruit mainly than we can cope with, masses of it. So it's uh, interesting to know that... Uh, uh, this sort of thing exists. Yeah, well, things like fruit. We'd love um, farm shops to have a, um, every farm shop we think should have a, a one of those apple presses so mm. you can um, take your apples on a certain day and get them crushed 
and um, perhaps also get some tips on uh, making some cider. Well, that's an idea, yes. Now, do you uh, vet any uh, vet these uh, organisations in any way? We thought um, when we started about having some kind of inspection system, but then we thought, um, well, if people are going on a map and they're adding information about themselves, uh, the local consumers should be the ones who vet the people on the map. So we have a, um, a review system so that if you see um, anyone who's making claims that you think aren't true, you can feedback and we can then um, investigate and uh, delist people who are dodgy. But um, okay. we have found over the years that because people know they're promoting themselves locally and their reputation is at stake, they do tend to tell the truth. And I think we've only had to uh, scratch one person off in um, 20 years. So, so it's been going, this, the food bat's been going that long then? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And um, it's constantly updating. We're constantly adding more people. Um, and um, we even run a competition so that um, if you look at the map and you see that um, we've got a mistake or someone missing, you can send us an email and um, you'll be put in a prize draw to win a big box of crisps every oh, month. Right. Oh, well, that's, uh, that, there's an incentive. <laughs> okay. And people can find this map at bigbarn.co.uk. Yeah. And um, more and more websites all the time. So um, we'd love to be working with... Um, uh, people like Visit Yorkshire and Deliciously Yorkshire, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that we all have the same map when we all add to it. And it then becomes a lot more powerful. But yeah. um, sometimes it's difficult to persuade people <laughs> to change. Uh, oh, but, well, uh, yes, yes. But we're working on it. Uh, let, let's talk um, about food policy uh, in more general terms. Um, I know you've got a lot of opinions and thoughts which you put up on your blog. Now, a lot of people say that if you're serious about climate change, and I put myself down as one who is serious about climate change, then you should go vegetarian uh, or ideally vegan. Is that the message that you want to promote? Uh, definitely not, no. Um, I think you should definitely think about it and you should definitely cut down on meat. But 70% um, of the world's agricultural land can't grow crops. In other words, it's um, places like the Moors, in um in yorkshire yeah. where you are or um uh high um highland ground or uh savannas in um other countries where you just can't grow crops so that land needs to be grazed um and by grazing the land you actually improve it um and um we then need to cull that um the animals that are grazed so we should eat those animals but um when I say eating animals, we definitely shouldn't eat meat on the scale that we are at the moment, which for many people is um, three times a day. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. probably should be more like three times a week uh, and only eating sustainable meat. So I, I would say that, um, yes, uh, vegetarian and veganism is, is a good uh, thought process, but um, I think it's, it's dangerous to, to have a knee-jerk reaction to saving the planet by becoming a vegan. And I think it should be thought through. And I was uh, flabbergasted to see some of the universities banning beef um, rather than providing the students with the whole story of beef and then letting them make their minds up. Okay, so, but there's been an academic report from the Food Climate Research Network called Grazed and Confused. And they point out that there's a very high proportion of global methane, which is a more powerful 
greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. A very high proportion of that comes from livestock. Uh, and therefore, the implication from that seems to be that we shouldn't be raising livestock and we shouldn't be, um, therefore, eating meat because we can't afford to have these emissions. Well, I agree with you. In a, um, in a, a factory farmed um, situation where we're putting grain into animals and they're producing methane from grain, but in a um, sustainable agricultural situation, you'll find that that methane actually breaks down after 10 years and is part of a, um, a very natural process of um, uh, grass being uh, produced, animals eating the grass, a little bit of it becoming methane and then it breaking down into carbon dioxide and that grass then using up the carbon dioxide so it's in a closed loop. And there's a, a great blog um, and a study that's been written called Don't Compare Cows to Cars because um, cars will produce carbon dioxide um, and that'll be in the atmosphere um, and it'll be cars that have broken down uh, fuel into carbon dioxide, whereas cows are part of a closed loop system. Yes, I think there's um, a link or a commentary on that report on your blog. There is, and there, there was a, um, a load of academics that got together in um, Belgium, and I, I had put a video up of it on Big Barn, and that shows the whole cycle that I've just spoken about. And these academics were singing the praises of ruminants and how they're a very important part of feeding the world by 2050. Right. Now, you're saying we should eat meat, but a lot less. Uh, that, of course, fits in with the fact that people who turn around and say, if we're going to give up factory farming, we are not going to have nearly as much meat and dairy, and therefore uh, we are going to have to cut it out of our, or cut down on it in our, in our diets. That's right, yeah. And it's, um, I, I was halfway up a mountain in Switzerland uh, a little while ago, and um, there was a cow halfway up the mountain, sitting down chewing the cud mm -hmm. and um, I did a little video of it and said um, what is more sustainable milk from this cow that is part of the ecosystem or um, almond milk from California that uses massive amounts of water and um, chemicals and is flown halfway around the world um, in the um, to satisfy the vegans um, mm, yeah. and uh, you know, it, it is all about sustainable agriculture and where we've gone over the last um, 50 years is, is to more intensive food production um, as cheaply as possible. And I would much rather see um, every village and town have a few small dairies around it and those dairies being um, part of a sustainable agricultural system uh, where the rotation means that the animals are putting um, natural fertilizers on the land and the vegetables are being growing, are being grown without the use of chemicals or um, uh, manufactured fertilizers. Right. One of the problems which is occurring in the UK is that increasingly stringent conditions mean that uh, small abattoirs are having to close because they can't afford the costs of the veterinary supervision and other measures which are now required. That means that small farmers who are producing maybe rare breeds or organic, organically reared cattle are having great difficulty in actually getting them to slaughter. So it, it puts their costs up. So why, what are we going to be able to do about that? 
Well, a lot of a fair bit of work has been done, and that will also be in this new food and farming strategy that's um, being worked on at the moment. And interestingly enough, it's it's the first food and farming strategy we have had since the war. Really? Uh, and that's absolutely ridiculous that there hasn't been any change. But um, yes, what we need is is some small uh, mobile abattoirs, and they have developed a couple of them that can um, travel around and uh, quickly sort out the animals and um, be put straight into the, uh, the local um, food supply chain. And if those animals can be sold direct to consumers rather than go through the market, the middlemen and the supermarkets, then not only can we, um, not only can a far- the farmer benefit, but the consumers benefit. And we see a lot of plastic cut out as well. Mm-hmm. I worked out that um, to um, sell an average uh, bullock in a supermarket takes about five to 600 plastic cartons because of course the animals cut up, put into cartons and then put on the shelves. Whereas your local butcher will get the whole carcass, chop it up as it's required and um, put it in wax paper and use zero plastic. So now that's, that's another story that's um, helping this whole process of, uh, of more sustainable, not only agriculture, but um, actual buying and um, consuming. Looking at the climate crisis from a food point of view or from any point of view, are you optimistic for the future? Um, Only if we can enlighten society. Um, There's no point in farmers all converting to sustainable farming and producing some brilliant products if consumers uh, only want to buy uh, ready meals and uh, fast food from the likes of um, McDonald's and uh, KFC. Um, because those people are going to want to buy, uh, are going to want meat from um, factory farms, um, and those factory farms will carry on. It, it's it needs consumers to be saying, "Oh, hang on, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I want to cook with my friends, and I want to be, I want to do things differently." And that's where the education in schools comes in. Okay, okay. So. What do you think people listening to this podcast should be doing tomorrow to uh, try and uh, achieve those sorts of objectives? Well, there's the, the exciting thing is there's so much information uh, at your fingertips now. Um, and you know, just listening to this podcast, you never would have been able to do something like this in uh, years and years ago. No. So I hope they have a look at our food map, see what's in their area. Uh, go and um, visit some of these local food um, outlets and um, ask lots of questions. And uh, the more questions we ask and the more we engage with our local producers, uh, the more they're going to um, start producing things we want. And um, a classic, uh, for instance, is to go to your butcher and say, does this meat come from a sustainable farm and where do you buy your meat from? And um, that butcher then starts to um, ask the farmer, and the farmer then changes, and um, the uh, the butcher then talks to the um, consumer about you know kind of what are you cooking, and helps them with that process, but um, also kind of tells them more of a story. So um, people will buy probably not so much meat, but um, buy better meat, and uh, become more healthy as a result. Good. Well, that's uh, an optimistic view of the future. 
Anthony Davison, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. I hope we can perhaps come back to you once this food and agriculture strategy has been published and uh, see what you think of it. Yeah, please do. I mean, um, uh, one of the things that I forgot to mention is that please um, register with Big Barn with your um, email and postcode and we'll keep you up to date on what's happening locally. We have a newsletter that comes out every month, only once a month. So you won't be bombarded <laughs> and um, it, it should have local food news in it. So we'll let you know if anyone opens in your area and we'd love you to, um, we'd love everyone to get involved. And as we convert um, from a CIC, which is what we are at the moment, to a community benefit society, then we're inviting people to, um, to actually join in and be part of their local food industry and benefit from it. So um, the more people are involved in this, the better as far as we're concerned so that uh, it can be run and um, looked after by everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you again. Anthony Davison's Big Barn is at bigbarn, B-I-G-B-A-R-N dot co dot UK. I've put links to a couple of his blog posts on our blog, and they in turn contain links to videos from the Ruminants conference that he mentioned. These videos reiterate the point that 70% of farmland cannot be ploughed but it can be used for grazing animals. They also show how, while ruminant animals like cows and sheep are a significant source of methane, this is all part of a natural cycle. Animals eat and digest plants which humans cannot digest. They produce methane, which breaks down into CO2, and the CO2 is absorbed by plants, which the animals eat, and so we go on. Until the Industrial Revolution, when the use of coal, oil and gas, which had been buried under the earth for millennia, started to release additional CO2, all of this was in balance. While extra CO2 stimulates some plant growth, the increased carbon emissions have exceeded the capacity of natural carbon sinks, the proportion of CO2 in the atmosphere is growing, and the planet is getting hotter. You could argue that demonising cows and sheep, which produce CO2 naturally, is simply a strategy to offset fossil fuels, which produce it unnaturally. Anthony mentioned that some universities have banned beef in their canteens. This started last year with Goldsmith College, followed by University College London, and last week students at the London School of Economics followed suit. As he said... Surely students at these prestigious establishments should be capable of assessing the facts for themselves and making up their own minds. After all, if the results were totally undeniable, then there would be no demand for beef in the canteens anyway. Writing in The Guardian, Christopher de Belague asks if we are seeing the end of farming. He starts by talking about the degradation of shooting estates in Scotland caused by overgrazing. He goes on to describe how some of these estates are now being rewilded. Rewilding brings back trees and a wide range of plants which in turn provide a habitat for wildlife. Plants and trees stabilise the soil against erosion and form a carbon sink. Rewilding is not without significant cost. And with no more shooting parties and no agriculture, the income now comes from luxury tourism. You could argue that it's saving the planet, but at the same time it seems to be excluding one group of wealthy people while welcoming another. Belague argues 
that in many cases British farmers have only been solvent thanks to European subsidies and were incentivized to seek ever-increasing yields. He cites Charles Burrell's 1,400-hectare Sussex estate, which made no money despite subsidies and investment in state-of-the-art technology. Burrell decided instead to create a biodiversity wilderness, let the land go back to nature and seek income from organic meat and, again, tourism. It appears that the estate is now profitable and employs more people than it did as a farm, but it still relies on EU subsidies. What's the future after Brexit? It seems that the new agriculture bill will reward public goods like wildlife reserves and the footpaths like those across Burrell's land, but will not subsidise crops. And where do we make up the shortfall from the crops that the estate and other farmers will no longer produce? Some farmers are turning to more organic production, while others advocate a return to mixed farming, crop rotation including grazing livestock to fertilise the fields. Maybe this will be better for the soil, but yields will undoubtedly be lower. How does this square with the UN prediction that population growth will demand a 70% increase in food production by 2050? Is technology the answer? It clearly didn't work for Charles Burrell, but things have moved on. Writing in Transform, the Journal of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, Chris Seekings investigates the many ways that agritech could be about to transform farming and food production. He talks about 30 MHz, a company based in Amsterdam, which describes itself as the data platform for your crops. They say, capture the metrics you need to make a difference in your agribusiness. Our customers use crop-level data to drive yields, reduce losses, optimise irrigation, improve storage, prevent disease risk and reduce energy. Know what your crops need by monitoring metrics including VPD, dew point, moisture deficit, EC, VWC, temperature, light intensity, relative humidity and CO2. Not quite sure what all those abbreviations stand for. Then there are the robots. The small robot company shamelessly describes itself as the future of farming. Their small robots care for crops plant by plant, gathering data across the field. They say, When we can not only understand a farmer's field on a plant-by-plant basis, but also take action at that level, a completely different farming system becomes possible. Farming will be able to produce an abundance of food with minimal negative environmental impact. These autonomous robots use up to 95% fewer chemicals and 90% less energy than traditional tractors, can work 24 hours a day and avoid crushing worms or destroying hedgerows and other biodiversity. Increased yield and minimal chemical use can boost revenues by up to 40% and cut costs by 60%. Meanwhile, drones are being used to identify drainage areas, crop health and weed pressure. We've known for a while about hydroponics and indoor and vertical farms. Now comes aeroponics. This technique involves no soil and water, but suspends plants in a nutrient-dense mist. Pioneers let us grow, building the farms of the future, provide cutting-edge technology for greenhouses and vertical farms. 
They claim that aeroponic methods use up to 95% less water and fertiliser than traditional field farming and emit 90% less CO2 than hydroponics. They can grow all the year round regardless of the weather, though as the name suggests this technique is largely suited to salad crops. There are quality advantages, but there are major upfront costs, as well as significant expenditure on electricity to keep the LED lights burning. It's all a long way from barren moors, rewilded croplands and glamping and retreats. One aspect we need to address, of course, is waste. There is waste at all stages in the supply chain, from vegetables rejected by supermarkets because they don't look perfect, to waste in the home because you bought one, got one free, but didn't use it. We might try and discourage waste by making food more expensive, by adding VAT or something, but that would hit the poorest elements of society the hardest. Waste is a topic I'm going to have to revisit in more detail. Overconsumption is another problem. In his book, There Is No Planet B, Mike Berners-Lee states that the average human eats 2,530 calories per day, which is 180 calories more than we need. Of course, this is very much more in some places and very much less in others, but as things stand, we produce 14% more calories overall than is needed to feed the world's population. We just don't share it equitably. In the book, he shows in detail how waste occurs at each stage of the supply chain. What are the conclusions from all this? Not very clear, and your ideas would be welcome. Big Barn can help us find sources of healthy food. I'm fortunate in that I have both the time and the money to take advantage of these shops. Many people just don't have the time. The supermarket, where everything is available in one place, next to a big car park, is all they have time for. Many don't have the time to cook, choose not to, or don't know how to. Hence the growth in consumption of ready meals and takeaways. Others in depressed areas do not have the transport to take them further than the local chip shop or convenience store. Feeding the world and saving the planet. Why is everything in sustainability so difficult? Well, that's it for this week. Apologies to patrons who got this less than 12 hours in advance of everyone else instead of the normal two or three days. We'll try and do better next time. As I mentioned before, I have more interviews lined up for future episodes, including one on population, one on the future of capitalism, and a sea captain who wants to take a fleet of sailing ships around the world to spread the message of the carbon balance. He's looking for sponsors. Just before I go, I learned that the Court of Appeal has blocked Heathrow's third runway. I'm sure we'll hear more about that. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Till next week. Music